0: My name is Catherine Tankon, and I will be reading the scripture this morning. The scripture is from Exodus 17, verses 1 to 16. From the wilderness of Sinai, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages, as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink moses said to them why do you quarrel with me why do you test the lord but the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against moses and said why did you bring us out of egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst so moses cried out to the lord what shall i do with this people they are almost ready to stone me the Lord said to Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some people for us and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur uh, went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands one on one side and the other on the other side so his hands were steady until the sun set and joshua defeated amalek and his people with the sword then the lord said to moses write this as a reminder in a book and recite it in the hearing of joshua i will utterly blot out the remembrance of amalek from under heaven And Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, A hand upon the banner of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let us pray. Uh, Lord, you have taught us uh, to search the scriptures for the presence of your Son. We pray that your Son would be present and walk amongst your people today by the power of your Holy Spirit, that he would bring us the bread of heaven. That he would feed our souls. In his name we pray. Amen. So it's a bit of a tough text to preach today. Uh, we should have arranged things a little better and had Sarah uh, preach this week. Uh, she could have done this one and I could have done bread from heaven. That's, that sounds like fun compared to this. Uh, it's a tough text to preach Because it's a tough text. Now, why is it tough? Well, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and are attacked by a vicious band of nomad raiders called the Amalekites. If you're familiar with Star Wars, think of the sand people on planet Tatooine. I think we have a picture of the sand people. Now, there you go. They lurk around the desert, kill people, and they take their stuff. Moses sends an army of men led by Joshua to fight, and he holds up a staff on the mountainside. And long story short, with God's help, the newly freed Israelites fight off this murderous band. And once they're out of the way, God's people continue their long journey to the promised land. Now, the tough part is this. After the Amalekites are defeated, God gets in touch with Moses, and God's like, write this down, Moses. Write this down and recite it to your victorious general Joshua. Not only did I help you beat them today, I'm going to wipe the Amalekites off the map. I'm going to blot them right out. I'm going to destroy all of them for good. Nobody under heaven or earth will even remember his name. Not entirely successful because we're obviously talking about his name right now. But. To which Moses responds by building up an altar and calling the place, the Lord is my banner. Why? To remind the Israelites that God will wage war against the, on Amalek and his people from generation to generation until they're all gone. Until they are blotted out blotted off the face of the earth. Now, this particular passage has disturbed commentators since the beginning. I mean, if we think that we're unique as modern people being disturbed by disturbing things in the Bible, we are simply not. I mean, it disturbs me. Why? Because God's going to make sure every last Amalekite is dead. And it's not an isolated incident. Later on in Deuteronomy 25, God orders the Israelites to never forget the ambush and to wipe out the descendants of Amalek altogether. And even further on in the book of Samuel, King Saul is cursed and eventually loses his crown in his life because he doesn't wipe out all the Amalekites when he has the chance. Instead, he shows mercy towards them and just takes their treasure. No, no-no. He, he, God t- removes him from his throne. And he loses his life. Because he didn't wipe them out. It's disturbing because God isn't simply giving a victory over a hostile power in a single battle. But God's ordering a holy war against a single people until they're gone for good. I mean, the technical term we would use today is... Genocide, like a literal one. I mean, the word genocide is thrown out a lot, but this is like literally wiping out an entire people. I mean, it kind of affirms every criticism of religion, doesn't it? As an irredeemable source of violence, the Bible is backwards, a primitive text, a license to commit unspeakable acts of viciousness in God's name doesn't make God look good, that's for sure. And it makes God's people look more like Hamas fighters than gentle Jesus. That's what makes it a tough passage. That's what makes it a tough passage. Now, what do we do with stuff like this in the Bible? What do we do? I mean, I suppose we can dismiss them out of hand, just another example of ancient barbarism. I mean, we could do that, I guess. We could. But you know, this is a Christian church seeking to follow Jesus, and this is the Bible we've got the tradition we've been given. It's one that we believe our ancestors in faith, led by God's Spirit, assembled for the good of generations, for our great good and God's greater glory. Old and New Testament. One Bible. I mean, this doesn't mean that the Bible is without... Error or contradiction. It's not like, say, the Koran, which many believe was divinely dictated word for word, but we believe that the Bible is God-breathed by human authors written. It does mean that there's wisdom in what they've given us. This is something that we, as disciples of Jesus, we kind of have to trust the text when we come to it. Trusting that tough texts like this will speak if we know how to listen to them. Now, you might have noticed that occasionally in sermons, I quote from a group of people often referred to as the church fathers and occasionally mothers. These are preachers and commentators who interpreted the Bible between the first and eighth centuries And believe it or not, they struggled with hearing texts like this one too, just like us. Not only that, but their critics would point to stories like this one as proving the ridiculous of Christianity and the foolishness of the God of the Bible. I mean, I don't know. I've had that happen to me too. It's not new. But you know what? They didn't just ignore or dismiss texts like this. I mean, some of them did. But they didn't... Ignore texts, or dismiss these texts. They did what Jesus instructs his disciples to do in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, after his resurrection. Jesus, we're told, he's walking along the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples. And Jesus, we're told, interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Jesus interpret to them the things about himself in all the scriptures Jesus said hey that thing that's we're gonna call the Old Testament one day look for me in there well few if any doubted the historicity of this event they understood the spiritual interpretation as most important they would interpret everything in the light Of the story of Jesus in God's fullest revelation in Christ. Some of them coming back to our text here some of them origin of Alexandria and Gregory of Nazianzus old bearded Middle Eastern guys for example interpreted the Amalekites not as flesh and blood enemies but as a symbol as a symbol. Here, the Amalekites are a symbol for the spiritual struggle of the human being and the human community. Seeing as how Jesus was himself was blotted out on the cross in our place, such destruction is no longer necessary. Seeing as how Jesus was decidedly nonviolent, taking on the world's violence rather than applying it, these stories need to be read symbolically. Or metaphorically, the battle has been transformed into an internal battle by Jesus, into a spiritual battle. The struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, in the words of the Apostle Paul, but against the powers of sin and death in our lives against evil itself. Like the Amalekites who raid God's people, relentlessly hounding them, attacking them, blocking their way to the promised land, we are raided, relentlessly hounded, and kept from the beauty of God's future by powers at work in us and our world. If you grew up in a bad neighborhood or a dysfunctional family, you'll know how hard it can be to break cycles of poverty and dysfunction in your own life if you've ever struggled with addiction you will know just how relentless the enemy is in dragging you back into the hole if you've ever fought for the rights of the marginalized you'll know just how persistently you're tempted with the sin of self-righteousness for some of us it's anger for some of us it's sloth for some of us it's an unwillingness to rest for some of us it's a desire to do and have what we don't have, or a lack of desire for what we do have. For some of us, it's a desire for success, fame, fortune, and for others, it's just a plain old hard heart in the face of hurt and injustice. We know how hard life can be. We know especially how hard it can be to be good. We know how hard it can be to do good. That's because evil, like the Amalekites, is persistent, nonstop. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. This text is important, shouldn't be ignored or avoided because human life at its heart is a struggle, a real life struggle, not against flesh and blood, but against forces greater than us and at work inside of us. I think that, you know, famous saint of 80s hard rock, Pat Benatar said it well. When she said, love is a battlefield, love is a battlefield. Not a bad description for the Christian life. Love is a battlefield. This text points to the spiritual life as a struggle, as a struggle. But that's not all it points to. I mean, I'll be honest, when I became a Christian, I felt like it was all struggle. I would just have to keep throwing myself again over and over and over and over and over and over, and, over. and it was just exhausting, an exhausting, never-ending battle to do good and to be good, full of absolute failure. If, if, if the battle was mine, I would have been routed a long time ago to support all the right causes, hold all the right opinions, do all the right things. But struggle isn't all there is to this text. This text is also important because while acknowledging the struggle, it contains a promise about that struggle. It not only contains struggle, it contains words of assurance. Assurance. Now, when Moses raises that staff, you know, there you go. I love that picture. Moses raises that staff while Joshua goes out to fight. It's clear that it ain't no ordinary staff. Because when Moses lifts it up, Joshua and his army start to win. When he lowers it, they start to lose. I mean, this is one of kind of my favorite scenes in the Exodus. It's kind of funny, actually. You know, Moses is getting tired. You know, he drops his arms. It's like, Joshua's losing. Hold up his arms, okay. Let's switch out the guys holding up his arms until the sun goes down. But the battle goes on for so long that Moses gets exhausted. Remember that, that up is victory, down is defeat. So if he can't keep his arms up, Joshua's and his gang are gonna be toast. So Moses' brother Aaron and this other guy, Her, they shove this stone under Moses so he can take a load off. And they grip his arms and raise them up and keep them raised until sundown. I mean, maybe it's just the painting I chose, but it's, it's a funny scene. Regardless of if it's the staff, or regardless of how funny it is, (laughs) it's the staff held high that brings the Israelites victory in the end. It's that staff held high. Now here's where those church fathers and mothers come in again, because again, when they heard this story, they couldn't help but hear about Jesus. Jesus. First there's Joshua. I mean, there's the fact that Joshua actually has the same name as Jesus. Yeshua. They both share the same name. Meaning that God saves. That's what Joshua means. That's what Jesus means. God saves. Yahweh saves. Yeshua. I mean, it's almost too obvious. And what's Joshua doing? He's out in the mix. He's out in the midst of battle. Here We hear an echo of the incarnation, God becoming flesh. Jesus doesn't just watch the struggle of human life from afar being like, okay, yeah, give him another one. Yeah, down there, okay. No, but he himself is God with us. Meaning that not only does this text point to the spiritual life as a struggle, it declares we are not alone in that struggle. It declares that we are not alone in our struggles. Like Joshua, Jesus stands beside us, bearing our burdens and fighting on our behalf. Whatever our battle may be, Jesus is at the front line with us. God is with us and for us in the battle of daily life. Joshua points to the promise of God's presence fighting alongside us. There's Joshua, but then there's also Moses. I mean, I'll be honest, this interpretation is a bit of a stretch, but it preaches. It preaches. I mean, this medieval tapestry that you can see up here paints a pretty decent picture. I mean, Moses is in there in the middle. Notice how Moses' arms are out like Jesus stretched on the cross. I mean, he even has two people kind of beside him. And I was going to try to transpose a cross with two other crosses beside him, but I couldn't figure out how to do that. But not only did the church fathers see the Amalekites as symbols of evil and Joshua as strength against evil, they saw this act by Moses as a symbol of victory over that evil and salvation from that evil. Why? Why? Because in the death and resurrection of Jesus, sin, death, evil, it's all been overthrown. It's been beat. It's a promise. This is a promise in the same way God gives the Israelites the victory against the Amalekites and pledges their complete destruction. Jesus gives us the victory in the spiritual struggle and promises that one day that struggle will come to a complete end. You know, the battle's so much easier to win when you know the tide of the war itself has changed. That's what the cross says. Moses lifts high the cross. The cross is our ultimate encouragement jesus is the victor christ has conquered on account of jesus the tide has turned though love is a battlefield we know that in the end love wins because god wins and we too are made conquerors through him who loved us evil itself will be blotted out wiped out of creation forever and for good that is the promise of the cross the promise of the gospel And it is the ultimate encouragement to us in the battles of daily life. That Jesus is the victor. God wins. All will be well. And all manner of things shall be well. So all I want to say to you today is simply that whatever army is encamped at your door... Whatever you've done that you can't get over, whatever habit you can't seem to kick, whatever you can't seem to do right or do better, know that you don't have to give up and you don't have to give in. Because like Joshua, God is with you in the fight. Like Moses, raising the cross, Christ is with you. And you can take heart. Because the victory is yours too. Even though life is a struggle, even though evil is an unrelenting foe, the cross is the shining promise that on account of God, none of our struggles are in vain. The cross is our ultimate encouragement and our promise of ultimate victory. How's that for a difficult text? Lift high the cross, the love of Christ proclaimed till all the world adore his sacred name. Come, Christians, follow where our Savior trod, the Lamb victorious, Christ, the Son of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.
2: Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a weary land, a weary land. My Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. When Jesus in the time of storm, yonder
0: a shelter in the time of
2: storm, a shelter in the time of storm, a shelter in the time of storm.